Yeah, I mean, there's so many people that do it really well, though. And you're one of those people, so it's like, you know. I have no idea if I do it well or not, but I do know it's fun to do. So. That's it, right? You could probably draw from so many different communities too. You could draw from like the vibraphone community. You could draw from like uh, you're in Atlanta, right? I am now. Yep. Yeah. So you know that I don't know anybody in Atlanta. So there's that. You know, on top of a whole bunch of other things. Like for me, I'm I'm just I've been getting to know people through this, and that's honestly been the most fun part. So right. it's it's been great. And where are you at, Texas? Yeah, right now I'm in Houston. Houston, Texas. Nice crib. Yeah, it's uh, H Town. Hold it down. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, it's. I grew up here, and uh, I was in Vegas for a couple years um, for grad school. And, nice. That's uh, kind of a pit. Yeah, I mean it. it <laughs> Depending it was, on where you're at, I mean, if you're in Vegas, Vegas, but yeah, I don't think people go to grad school on the Strip. No, I mean so, UNLV was such a such a strange place you know it was so like it's like yeah we're all going to school but we also like we want to be playing down the street you know on the strip one day so right uh, I, I got a buddy who I played with like one of my first collaborators and when I say first I mean like 14 15 years old uh, um I don't mean like professional collaborators although we made lots of money believe it or not but um yeah but he's he lives in Vegas with his family. He's got like four or five kids, and he just um, he just plays. He plays all the the big joints, plays piano and sings, does the Sinatra thing. Still doing it. What's his name? Nicholas Cole. Nicholas Cole. Okay. Yeah, he plays like the Bellagio, like a couple nights away. I mean, pre-Corona. I know he plays some places now, like an Italian club and some other places. Yeah. Because he does all the Sinatra stuff and the crooner thing. But yeah, um, they love that. Money. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't yeah. grind out like that. No, I mean. It definitely is a grind at first, but dude, if you land a corporate gig, you're you're set. I mean, I don't know if you know yeah. Alex Stopa or not, but Alex Stopa play played a show full time with him and his wife. Po- both played at the Win like six nights a week. Yep. Um, obviously that was those are few and far between, but if you land one, you're you're pretty set. You know. Sorry, I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> no, no. I was just checking. I had re- I hit record just to check to make sure I was getting levels in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm, I'm you recording, recording now? You start recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to. I try to record as soon as I click admit in because sometimes I will forget. Forget. Yeah, it's ha- it hasn't happened in a while. Thank God, but. Happens on lessons for me on a regular basis. Dude. <laughs> regular basis. Uh, yeah, I... Sometimes logic will crap out on me, but it's been good lately, so... It used to. I have it running on an external SSD now, so it usually oh, is a little smart. more reliable. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, it hasn't given me problems in a while. You know, there was like a couple times where it was like, system overload, and I'm like, why? Why, God? Why? <laughs> and... Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been great since they've updated Zoom. Um, Zoom has been great. Uh, I wish we could do this in person, but obviously everything's still going on. But um, well, I'm ho- I'm hoping that 
you know, even the cool thing, that's the best, been the best part about this is like making these kind of connections that you'd never make anyway, mm. you know, because you'd be like, oh, I'd love to talk, oh, but he lives so far away and you just don't even bother. But now it's like, well, I mean, might as well talk to people in another country. Yeah, might as well. I mean, John Hatfield, you know? when I did his, he was in Paris, still in Paris and just worked out the time difference. It was, it was fine. And so like, I've had some really great conversations that way. And thankfully you can do things on a whim too. You're like, Hey, you know what? Let's talk tomorrow or something like that. And right. It's really easy to set that up when it's, it's been a lot of fun, man. And, um, thanks so much for doing this too. I know you're a busy guy, so it's, it's great. Oh yeah, it's great. It's awesome, man. And you know, I'm uh, what, what are we, uh, what are we getting into? So I can get into anything. I'm in a mood, so it's cool. Whatever you want, dog. I mean, like it's, I got into that percussive toxicity thing with Tracy, um, but that I was, love that. that was his, that was all based off his Facebook post and, um, uh, about the subject. And I thought it was well, I thought it was needed that conversation, or at least to get the conversation started. Sure. Um, what, what is your like day to day in Atlanta? What, what, what do you, what are you kind of doing these days? I'm a jazz and percussion director at a high school. Okay. Um, that's the thing that kind of stabilized me when I got up here. Unfortunately, hasn't missed a beat even with coronavirus. So I'm blessed yeah. for that. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's funny when I got up here, I got up here in summer of 19, but I had so much stuff booked elsewhere. Like I didn't even, I might as well have been living back home. It didn't make a difference. So right. I, um, I was doing a lot of residencies at camps. I had a whole bunch of percussion festivals and stuff lined up for 2020. Um, I had a few tours in my band. I had a few tours, music directing for Sarah Reich. Um, she's a tap dancer I work with. She's awesome. Sa yeah, she's sour, there. sour taps, I think is her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we were about to actually book a tour and do a whole thing. And, um, so I had a lot of, a lot of that stuff. So I was working all out of town. I, I played a bunch in Nashville. I played some in New Orleans and then Corona hit. So I'm actually playing Friday in Atlanta for the first time since I moved here, which is pretty cool. Where were you before? Uh, South Florida, like uh, Palm Beach County, which is by Miami, about an hour north of Miami. Okay, cool, cool. So I was, um, I, I was born and raised there. So, gotcha. Yeah, that was my whole life. Um, so this is my first move, move. Like I've traveled a ton, obviously, but this is my first like time paying taxes in a different state. Well, why Atlanta? Mm, a couple, a combination of reasons: uh, housing prices, uh, the the county's investment in music education. Yeah. Um, made it made it so that when I where I had to work, you know, and run around between three, four different marching programs and, you know, trying to teach all over the place I make at one school. Mm. So um, that and it's just kind of the culture up here. So and then that and plus I said housing prices, which was huge. And then like a temperate climate that wasn't too cold, but still we got seasons. Right. We, yeah. Me and nor my children had never seen seasons before. I mean, I've. Fall, I, I've never seen because it's marching band, so I don't travel during marching band, right? Um, other than going to PASIC, but by then it's winter, so yeah. you know, so being able to like fall is endlessly fascinating to me, yeah. You know, it's something I've only visited. Georgia's gorgeous, yeah. I'm in North Georgia, I'm, I'm north, I'm not, I am considered North Georgia, I'm not South Georgia's a pit, but North yeah. Georgia is really cool, yeah, exactly. I've, I've been to Atlanta once before, it was a long time ago, I don't even remember the trip basically, but. Um, the marching thing is an interesting, uh, it's definitely relatable in, in my sense because I'm growing up in the South, obviously we marching band is a big deal Huge. and, um, it's gotten to a point where now I can teach it, um, you know, be pretty adaptable to any situation. Um, and, 
you kind of realize like you're kind of going on autopilot for a lot of it. Uh, obviously, there's show design and and everything like that, getting thing, getting the season going. But uh, there is something about like kind of that. Well, here we go again. Thing about it, it's it's a little. I'm kind of at that point. I'm only, I'm only 25, but it's it's uh, getting to that point for me where it's it's becoming kind of the same for me. I don't know if you feel the same, but um, I love this stupid activity. Yeah, you know, like it's it's like one of those things where I think, you know, when I was coming up in it, I was really, I was really like, you you have sort of you have sort of this idea of. Um, this is not a real job and that's what kind of community and culture puts you on. So you're kind of in this sort of, and that kind of trickles down into, you know, this is something that I do now, but you know, eventually I'm going to do this other thing or I'm going to try to move pivot into this thing. But there was kind of like a point where even when I got, I was like, when I hit, when I, what was I, maybe when I was like 33, I started doing a lot more community work in terms of like, I was a cultural arts director for a city. I started a nonprofit theater. I ran said nonprofit theater. I was mm-hmm. in nonprofit development for years, raising money. And through all that, I still kept my gig. I didn't need to keep the gigs teaching marching band. I just kept them. And then when I no longer wanted to sit behind a desk or like shill for dollar bills um, at, at city commission meetings, I was like, you know what? I just kind of one day accepted the fact that like, I, I really love doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Like I, I no longer feel shame in just saying that I just really love doing this silly thing. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and that's a problem that so many, so many, I, I feel like so many people have when they're in those, those really, really formative years where you have, you know, Tupac once said that, you know, the, the government knows that you're, you're most formidable between 18 and 22 or eight, whatever number of the 18 to 23, 18, to 25, whatever it was. So that's when they try to stymie you. That's when they try to quiet you. That's when they try to make sure that you're not, cause you have your most energy, you're most passionate about things. You're your most versatile. You have the most resources behind you and you can go do what you want to do. So after that, you start to be like, yeah, you know, I've settled with that. You know, then you get to the age where you're like, yeah, that, that social condition is never going to change or this condition is never going to change. So you just start right. working within it. Um, and I think that during those, those years when you have the most energy, when you have the most time and the most support, you're living at home when you should be really just doubling down on the risk taking is when it's like, yeah, I'm just not going to do this thing. I'm just going to, you know, and then, and then universities hardly prepare you. I'm working, you know, I'm talking backwards. I'm kind of like, <laughs> but universities hardly prepare you for actual real life. So it's, um, yeah. So, so, so a lot of times we end up like with these things that we love that we want to do, but there's so many reasons why we don't do them and most of them have to do with everything outside of our own desire to do or not do them right. which is kind of tragic you know well um, the, the marching community is definitely one that um is filled with great people but also not so great people which is it's at the same time that's pretty much any profession i get that um but you know for me i, I think there was there was a point where I had a chance to like take a year off from it forcibly because of everything that's going on. And you sit back for a sec and I'm like, man, I've just been grinding it out for however long it's been. I, I, there was a point where like you were forced to, I, I went from having 12 to 14 hour days to having nothing to do in a day. And I was like, I mean, this is just strange. I mean, it, and then you were going back and realize that like, you know what, maybe marching band did, did a lot for me that I didn't even expect. I mean, growing up, growing up in Texas is a little bit different of a standard, obviously. Um, 
with how much there is involvement in high school football, how big high school football is, how big the state um, relegation is uh, with UIL and uh, the competitiveness. And you kind of sit back and realize like, you know what? I mean, I am, I am grateful for these experiences. I'm grateful for my college marching experience. I'm grateful for the little bit of drum corps that I did. Um, the little bit of teaching drum corps that I did. And it was, it's like, you know what, you know, you, you make a, you make a great point because like maybe it, and I, I've probably said this out loud to myself. It's like, you know, what, at the end of the day, I do like doing it. It's just, you know, it's, it, I guess, I guess it's it, I'm getting to the point where I've done it so much where I'm, I'm like, you know what it, it is. There's similar similar occurrences that happen i think that you're like okay well at least i know how to deal with it uh but other than that you know it's like i think i'll be at the same point where you're at where you know and you know i do like this it's just you know at this but, point but i also think there's a there's a there's a flip side to that too because the passion that you have when you're young and you want to just be a part of drum corps you want that kind of name recognition man i'm going to teach blue knights or i'm going to teach phantom or i'm going to get to go teach wherever it, you know there, there's some cores and it's not like it's a malicious thing, I don't think. I really don't believe it is, but, you know, drum corps in and of itself is kind of built upside down a bit, mm-hmm. you know, like in terms of if you look at every other major sport, there's 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 two, I haven't fleshed out this theory, but, you know, ultimately you pay your members, you know, you pay your talent, right? you know what I mean? Like you pay your talent to do it. I'm not saying that drum corps should do that. I get that it's youth activity and it's, you know, whatever you want to say about that, but also there's a structure that pays the organizations that takes care of the organization's basic needs that doesn't come from the membership and the talent. And so when, when an organization is living off of, of, of the, those who are um, active participants in the organization and are a finite resource because there may not be enough of them or because they age out, and you have to keep going, you know, you're, you're kind of built upside down. And then the drum cores themselves, if you look at other sports, those drum, those sports or those teams who lose, oh, there's always something built in to make sure that no one stays losing long unless they suck at management. Right. Right. So, I mean, in football and I think in baseball, like you get, you get the first draft pick. Yeah. Right. Um, but in drum core, where you place is how much more you get paid when you go to shows. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, Santa Clara right now or Blue Devils, you're going to get paid more to go to whatever local show than you would if you're um, Madison Scouts right now or whoever else. So everything is kind of stacked to continue to separate the haves and the have nots. Yeah. And, you know, so you have these course folding and they say, oh, man, tragic. They had bad management. But I mean, you know, if you're in the Midwest and you're fighting for however much talent there is, I mean, you could survive, but you can't survive based on the fact that once you start falling out of the top 12 or you're in the just semifinals group, or you're maybe fighting for the top 12 and you got three other groups that are top five to compete with, you know, and you're drawing kids from different areas and different demographics. And now you're charging five grand, four grand for a season. Yeah. It's just becomes, you know, I, I can understand. I'm not even saying don't charge kids. I'm saying, but 1200 bucks, there should be a cap on it. And if you can't figure out how to raise money to figure out the rest, Shorten your tour. It's funny how they, there's a comparison. Well, I'm a sports fan, so I, a, a salary cap makes a lot of sense, right? 
because it, it, the only sport that doesn't have it is baseball, and we can see how ridiculous baseball gets. But uh, that's an interesting point to bring up. I don't know if I've ever heard that conversation when it involves drum corps, and you they're like, well, we're a nonprofit. You know, we're this, we're this, we're that. And so, but the the topic of a salary cap types of situation is very interesting because at that point it does level the playing field. Does it not? I mean, we're seeing we're, I mean, today there was a million different NFL signings. Um, and that's all based on the same lowered salary cap that the NFL is going to have this next year because of the loss of revenue and all that kind of stuff. But man, I've never thought about that for drum court. But I mean, think about it. And that's true too, because if, you know, I remember back when I was marching and it was, rumored and i don't know how true it is but um it was rumored that you know wayne downey made thirty thousand a year just writing and teaching for blue devils you know um yeah made 30 just for the summer and for writing and stuff like that i remember being a part of magic of orlando on staff back in the early 2000s when you know in 2002 we had we brought in gino cipriani we pretty much skanked Gino Cipriani and, and and all of his crew from I think he was at Cadets at the time I don't think he was at Blue Devils still I think he was at Cadets at the time we we took them in you know we paid them what we paid them whatever the case was but then it was like hey let's bring in Colin came in in 20, 2000, 2003 and these guys demanded exorbitant salaries that I'm not saying weren't justified mm. I am saying that Magic of Orlando could not afford those salaries right yeah, at yeah, that yeah, time yeah. and still function but if you wanted to get that kind of team. And it was already proven by us winning Division Two in 2002, which is my age out year. Us winning Division Two and then placing finals in Division One. That you need that level of staff to bring that level of kid who follows the staff, and you got to pay him. Yeah. So then you get the whole like, ah, Magic still owes me, for, you know, ten grand and da, da 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 and this and that, and they folded and all this other kind of stuff. This guy got indicted. True story. Um, and you know. Uh, all of this other kind of stuff that happens because that's what you have to do. But now you have a separate arms race, you know, where you have this, like, you got five trailers pulling up into a, a stadium. Right. I mean, and yeah. if you can't afford that, if you can't afford the level of props where it looks like a, a really a Super Bowl show. Um, or a case of becoming your own corporation and buying out, buying out a, an entire, I don't know if they bought them out or contract or whatever, a, a drum company to make system blue drums, to make, uh, you know, have a whole division of a, a stick company and a, and a drum head company dedicated towards your brand. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that stuff is already made. They just get, made a deal to slap their name on it. Yeah. Like for example, the system blue stuff, which isn't called system blue, like in the keyboard land was all Musser stuff. Right. And they just slap system blue on it but now it's officially muster which is pretty cool promark system blue just has like their own little division of stuff but all the same signature stuff but the same idea i mean and bingo is okay in california but it's not okay in jersey you know or bingo is okay here but it's not okay there so you can't even have these like economic drivers um to be able to do that but i think might be changing a little bit with COVID and things kind of backing off a little bit. You see people, uh, Phantoms doing their show, Harmonic, I think Harmonic Journey, Harmonic Voices, whatever it was. Um, they're repeating a show. I know I'm arranging at C, uh, Atlanta CV, which is a DCA core this year. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that the first couple shows or the, most of the shows you have to re- pre-record and send in, but you have to use a certain type of microphone, put it on a certain type of place, and everybody has to do the same thing so it's not like an arms race to see like well i'll pay for the 10 grand shotguns and you can only afford the 800 shotgun mics yeah 
you know, and I'll have the crew with the boom arm come down and tape them like it's a PBS broadcast from the 90s. And all you can do is a steady cam from upstairs um, or a stationary cam from upstairs. Everyone has to do the exact same thing, which I think finally gives us a little bit of like, okay, we're all in the level playing, which hasn't happened in a minute, you know, Um, and I think that's important. I think that's super important because maybe I don't think I don't think this is just discussed a lot. I mean, I feel like there's more cores that have made a push to be better in recent times, like the Academy, uh, Boston Crusaders, Colts, um, cores like that who used have been up and down throughout the years, but have made this push to make finals and 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 be a contender, whereas like there's still some cores left behind. Um, and man, that's a conversation that isn't really had a lot because of the concept of a level playing field. And, um, you could argue that traditional traditions and drum corps are actually, um, leaving. I mean, based on some certain things that have happened to certain cores and certain notable, figureheads in DCI but uh and WGI and no Hopkins well that and and I Madison Madison going co-ed yeah and things like that and all the stuff oh yeah and Ike yeah yeah, um, which is you know I mean maybe now I mean you now you see someone like Santa Clara and Vanguard completely winning DCI and based on the fact that they modernized and and went and did the uniform thing that everybody's doing and whether you like it or not, I mean, there, there's, there's a certain trend that it's going to, the activity is going towards the activity already sets the trend anyway for the entire country, whether it's high school level or whatever. And so maybe it's time that, uh, something like that happens, obviously after it bounces back, because there was a, there was a time there that because of all that's been going on, that maybe not come back which is scary yeah. out, but you know, maybe after all this, who knows? Yeah. I mean, as somebody who spent most of my drum corps and marching career on mallets, I would love, you know, I'm kind of, it's funny. I'm kind of excited about doing CV. My last, my last drum corps education thing was 2018 at blue coats. Um, I helped do some vibe. They have a, they had a ton of vibraphone features for that, for that show. And I came in Great literally got, uh, yeah, I love that show. One of my favorites of all time, actually. And I came in and, and you know, um, Tom called me and said, hey, we got a lot of vibraphone stuff. Can you come help us vibraphone? Mm-hmm. So I came in, arranged some stuff, added some dampenings and pedalings and things like that. Um, and just kind of helped arrange some of the vibraphone stuff for more, more clarity because it was kind of arranged like it was marimba. But there's no pedaling. Everyone's pedaling different. No one's dampening anything. The arrangements were super thick and it was unnecessary. You know, it was just clouding it up. Um, anyway, um, which is fine in a normal thing, but when it's just vibraphones and your singer right behind you, it needed some needs some action, yeah. right? So that was my and I and I'd like man, this is really cool. So I got to Atlanta, and Chris Romanowski, who's one of the uh, him and Bill Bachman created heavy hitter pads. Yeah, um, he's uh, he is the percussion director at CV, and we've been friends because we taught at Magic in two thousand five, which was a very tragic season, and we bonded and commiserated over the misery of that, and have stayed close ever since. Do you, do you um, know Adam Steph? Yeah, I worked yes. for Adam, I worked for Adam at Foothill in Vegas. Oh, nice. Yeah, dude. That Florida Adam's... that 
That Florida community is awesome, by the way. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I loved it. I do. I'm just learning about this community. It's very different. Everything's very different. There's no front ensemble. I need a front ensemble person and I can't find one. Mm. Um, if only I could drive to Atlanta every day. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> I mean, but the cool thing about CV is they are, you know, the, the shows are still fun and um, I get to write stuff that's fun. And, I, you know, I was, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it just because of the fact that it's like has this sort of neighborhood vibe to it. Oh, yeah. You know, everyone who's there is from here. So you're not only building up here, you're building up the programs around here by helping yes. it out. And there's a lot of community aspect to it, which is the way drum corps initially started. Right. I mean, it was Correct. it was neighborhood. Right. Um, and so I think that that's really cool. Whereas, you know, I, I don't know how many people from Blue Coast are actually from Canton. I forgot they're from Canton, you know, so <laughs> I think a lot of people forget uh for the, that for a lot of cores besides you know if it's in the name obviously but i mean right but even boston crusaders rehearse in florida half most of the correct. time since like the early 2000s so yeah um to me they used to we used to joke after magic folded you know that boston crusaders was the florida core like oh man our florida I mean, core is boston crusaders is it not <laughs> i mean i know exactly 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 so you know but you know like i was saying as a mallet person um for me you know, I heard you were talking to Tracy and you were talking about the, the Burton grip versus Stevens grip and technique things and with that percussive toxicity thing. And honestly, I think the technique for drum corps is still in a lot of areas just really, really harmful. Um, I agree. You know, especially in the front ensemble action. And we were talking about that today. And, you know, the, I, I said, listen, I'm not we're actually at my school. We're going all mallet stations next year. No, um, which, I have one right next to me, actually. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It. So we're going to do six of them and, you know, we'll do percussion and we'll do probably do Glock. We'll do Glock because I don't like the Glock sounds on, on Malisations. We'll do Glock and yeah. um, we'll do percussion stuff, maybe do some timpani, maybe some drum set. But overall, I love the fact that, I mean, there's, there, the problem is that when a kid comes into ninth grade and not in Texas, probably, but in most of the rest of the world, um, this is the first time they're seeing like a vibraphone or a marimba like a, or a wood instrument. And the first thing we do is we say, all right, marching band time, you know, time to play. Yeah. You know, we just start beating the tar out of the thing. Um, and that becomes, and unfortunately, another problem happens is that usually the person in front of them that's really doing the technique block isn't the overall percussion director, right? It's the person who's hired to win the competition or to make the thing happen. Yeah. So they don't have any true investment in the winter unless there's a marching thing but assuming there's not in the winter in the full overall holistic education of the child over the next four years they have a job to do and rightfully so they're like all right i gotta make these guys look clean you know make them look like a snare line in the marimba section and um that's what i gotta do right now yeah. so i'm gonna do whatever i have to do so i can keep my job and my friends can think i'm cool and they can see my drum line when i put it on instagram and I, they can i can look super clean right in september before everyone else is there and share it on the <laughs> you know whatever that whatever the thing is and so they do that to the detriment um, of the kids. So then they do it. Maybe they win some drums. Who cares? And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, time for orchestra. And now everyone's bored to death. Everyone doesn't like it. Every time you're like, all right, guys, we're going to play our scales. They're just like, oh, sorry, this thing is on super high. Uh, they're, you know, super, you know, just playing super loud in, yeah. in the middle of an orchestra or a, a concert band. And the biggest problem with that, there's a lot of issues, but the biggest problem with that is that their sense of satisfaction with playing these instruments comes from the technical demand of their part, as opposed to the musical contribution of their part. Well, 
and also they realize that they aren't spending most of the rehearsal on the instrument. You're spending a lot of the rehearsal in a concert band setting counting or yep. bef- before and after you're setting up instruments you don't want to play. What And this is back in a high school age thing. I mean, sure. But majority of high school students are not going to be music majors and they're not going to really care as much unless, unless there's a culture to care um, about, about, the other things that, and if you have a marching culture, 99% of the time, they're not going to care. Right. A marching centric culture. And, and, and that's, but percussively, I could argue that, uh, well, I guess here's the thing facts, but the work, the problem, the challenge is the fact that then you have to fight. Once you come out of marching band and you have the camaraderie and the playing all the notes and the competitions. And now it's like, yeah, we have a concert in four months or, yeah, we have this piece or yeah, we're going to play this concert piece, but you're going to play the, you know, multi-percussion part or percussion one or percussion, whatever the parts might be called. Mm. Or you're playing the Glock part, but I just played the marimba part on the thing. It's like, yeah, well, you're playing the Glock part on this tap space piece that we just picked, you know, and that's just kind of what it is. Yeah. So, you know, once that starts to happen, um, you have to almost like, it takes that full year to get the buy-in. Like they get to see, get to that first concert. They have to be into it. Um and 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 then also and this is more to the point is that now you have all of these kids who are have been taught to play a technique or an approach that is unique for one little microcosm but not only not only that but if if you if you had a teacher who was micromanaging every move who was setting inches on things and who was you know, not defining things in musical terms, but like, hey, I told you that's nine inches off the board. All right, nine to three, which is a very snare line, you know, very rudimental term. Correct. Um, then you also have these these kids who aren't thinking musically and they're not thinking critically and they're not, they, they let go of all of their main superpower, which is their choice. Right. Um, and as percussionists, that's our choice, right? Like, do I use this or do I use this or do I use this? And which keyboard do I play? What symbol do I play for this particular role? You know, what 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 size wood block should I play? What stick should I play? How should I tune the head? How should yeah. I muffle the bass drum? All these things are choices that are taken away from you right when you walk in the door. Yeah. And um, and you never got them in middle school, most likely, because most of your middle school directors, at least in Florida, in my experience in many places I've been, were really busy focusing on things that God, I wish they would focus on with percussionists. Correct. So it's like, you know, while you're sitting here talking about breathing and balance and blend with all of your wind players, it's like percussion guys, can you, can you come down? Can you please got, all right. You're going to get a referral. You're going to get a referral. Okay, guys, listen to your trios. Listen to the people next to you. Open your ears. Yes. Breathe together. Percussionists. Yeah. Right. You know, sound quality, percussionists. All right, fine. Play a B flat scale. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. You missed a note, whatever. Give me, give me eights while we play our warm up. Right, exactly. And then it kind of sometimes it per, per, persists when you're like, all right, let's do the drumline and mallet stuff together. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I understand is a is a is a uh, necessary evil at times, but um is is not a, a practice that should be there. So all that to say, I'm excited about using mallet stations because I'm excited to be like, all right, I'm not even this is how we play the outdoor game. And it's gonna be more about boom and playing. Oh, that's mm. on and playing and doing whatever you're doing and however you're gonna approach that. Um, and then when we come inside during the class day, it's like here now. Here's how we play these. Here's how we play yes. these. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. I dig that because, yeah. um, and also just a little side note: you are teaching them some practicality of where we're going in the activity. Because that's my next thing. I bought my mallet station for gigs, right? And because yep. I'm 
especially when I play musical theater gigs in a regular world, I'm that's a lifesaver. And yep. the main stage patches aren't bad either. So and it's like, why would I load in all this gear when I have that thing? And there's an there's an out and there's you know a sound engineer and or at least there was in Vegas the gigs I played and it was you know that's a lifesaver. And teaching that practicality at this age is like, man, you could have some you could have some people gigging around town at 16, 17 years not, old. Not only that, but you're talking about logic training, main stage yeah. training. You're talking about VSTs, DAWs. You're talking about how to set it up, what sounds, you know, how to do music production right. just through your marching band season. Right. Right. And so I'm I'm stoked. I'm stoked. To, I'm going to add that to the curriculum next year. And I'm just really stoked to, to bring this to these kids and be able to kind of approach it that way. We're going to do a ton of projects with it. Um, and try to just prepare these kids and get them excited so that they can, because usually in a band program, it's the same schedule every single year. Right. You know, it's whatever your state has as their benchmark things and their, you know, here's our gifted kid things and our kids who worked hard things and our honor band things and our concerts and our spring concert, winter concert, marching band, whatever. But so basically, if you're a kid and you're playing, if you can't see yourself doing that, you haven't thought outside of that box. Like right. you're just kind of like, yeah, I like band. When you say, hey, do you, why don't you do music for a career? You're really gifted. Well, I like band, but I don't like it that much. Well, yeah, you're not going to do band. Yeah, you're playing music. <laughs> you know, like there's other options Since than just band. I had kind of like a shift in my educating personally where um, I had to stop being such a technician about everything. Ah. And when you when you convey that change in mindset to the students and you focus and you're music centric music making musical adjustments as opposed to technical adjustments your sound <laughs> your sound, I wrote an article about that did you yeah and it's 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 still my hottest article i think it's at like 70 or eighty thousand reads at this point on i'd love Medium. to read it yeah um it's actually called our we're, we're training our young our students to be technicians instead of musicians yeah well, um, I I personally had that revelation myself in my own playing. And so whenever I had that happen and I was lucky enough to be with a, a pretty well-off school in, in Vegas and, and a BOA school who had some high-level playing going on, um, their sound their sound opened up so much because you at a certain point, and if you've done things a way in a way where you're making it easier on yourself as far as like culture and self-sufficiency with the students, but making it music centric when I had them was it, it opened up their sound, their sound in a way that I, uh, I, 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 it blew my mind. It honestly did. And it was, um, all because I had the revel revelation myself and, there has to be a point where you let go of that training, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. There's like a, a certain cycle to the the talent you get in with, you know, a freshman class or a senior class leaving or whatever. But man, dude, I, I it was it was eye opening. It was one of those things where you're just you you sit back and you're like, that was really cool. And so, yeah, I, yeah, and I mean. If you get a chance, yes, mediums are, are young percussionists are not being trained to be musicians is what it's called. And it's called the, the, the fear is that we create these technicians as opposed to these musicians. Right. Um, but the way I teach a front ensemble um, and I was at the school I was at before I moved up here, Boca Raton High School was a small school um, and I was there for 15 years. 
Mm -hmm. And essentially, I went through four band directors and the last band director, we had a percussion class. I don't have a percussion class in Atlanta. I teach all, you know, it's just three band classes. Mm -hmm. I teach a percussion in those classes. But by the time we got to the certain hit, the certain stride, I mean, I was winning with five people in the pit and one snare, one quad, three bases, um, you know, and, and then we kind of grew. But and I started doing the pod thing that Blue Coat started doing like 2016, but I was doing it a little before that in 14, but it was a necessity thing. It wasn't like a choice. It was right. like, well, I got three, I got three dope players and I got a keyboard player and a percussionist. Let's have them play like, you know, let's just have them play everything. Play, we have microphones. Let's a setup. <laughs> right. Like, but uh, ultimately, regardless of all of that, you know, there's three non-negotiables with technique that I have. Um, one, everything should serve sound. The only reason for even thinking about technique or talking about technique is so you can make beautiful sounds. That's it. The only reason why I care. Otherwise, I wouldn't care if you played with your pinkies and your whatever, or you, you squeezed too much, or you did whatever. Number one, you got it. The only reason is to facilitate beautiful sounds. And we have to do that. Now, you can, you can get beautiful sounds with bad technique. Right. But the other things it has to hit, it has to consider your, your health. It has to yeah. consider making sure that you're going to you're going to be able to play for a long time, not hurt yourself and have tendonitis and carpal tunnel and all those other kind of things. And it has to be able to facilitate you to uh, to elevate your ceiling. Right. So even though we're playing things and at a slow tempo and, yeah, you could play, you know, if you're playing some. You can play that whatever technique you want and probably make it sound pretty decent, but I'm going to show you how to play it in a way so that you know, in five years from now, you don't have to go back and relearn things or relearn, unlearn bad habits. Right. So it's those three things. Outside of that, I don't really care that much. You know, it, what grip you want to play, I'll teach you to play, you know, if you're playing Stevens, I'll help you play Stevens in a way that is ergonomic, that is, again, healthy, is great. If you want to play a cross grip, if you want to play a Burton grip, you know, I'll, you know, I taught and did Stevens all through drum corps, but I play, I play a modified Burton grip. Um, which is more like a cross grip because the fulcrum is back way back here as opposed to way up here. Yeah. Um, so I, it doesn't matter to me because I love ex I've spent hours and hours just thinking about how the hands move. And as I learn other things, like I took Kung Fu for a while. And one of the things that always impressed on me was the fact that it was not about belts. It wasn't about um, it wasn't about you know, your progress, it was about just learning the forms. And for three months, we learned the first form. And for the first month, we moved th this slow. Yeah. You know, because you, you don't, they don't, you don't, can't learn it wrong. Don't learn this part wrong. Like, yeah. this is the part that you must learn correctly. Yeah. Um, and kids always want to play fast. They always want to do this kind of stuff. Um, so, so I, I took that and I applied it. Another thing that happened that really kind of affected me was I had this, I, I was actually during all the zoom classes, I was my desks are really high up, you know, because I wanted everything level with my vibraphone. So I had this chair and it, I was sitting on an angle with it. And I ended up having this terrible pain in my leg, like I couldn't even walk. So I went to a sports psych, uh sports chiropractor. And he, you know, did some tests on me, you know, rubbed some things and cracked some things. And he was just kind of <laughs> like, your, your muscles are working in the wrong order right now. Oh, I'm like, okay. what? He's like, yeah, no, he's like, these muscles should be working. And then at, when these muscles have maxed, then these muscles start, but your other muscles are working first and it's causing all of this out of syncness. Like he, you know, he explained it to me in layman's terms. And I was like, huh, interesting. Yeah. 
So I'm realizing now that there's, whereas I've only focused on the fact that you use a ratio of wrist to finger to a ratio of your arm fulcrums to be able to play. Um, and that ratio helped also, you could also be using these muscles out of order and that could cause damage as well. So uh, essentially most of your stroke comes from your wrist. This is known after that you use your fingers to go ahead and enhance that stroke. Like if I'm being honest, my wrist by itself probably flexes well, I'm, I'm sitting really low so I can do whatever, but probably really flexes off the board about this much, right? Yeah. Maybe when I was in my twenties, I would push it, you know, no big deal, but without any pain or discomfort, I can flex about here, right? right. But once I let, let the mallet move and open my finger and I add that to my stroke, now I'm not adding any more pressure to my twitching muscles, um, you know, as I flex and I'm allowing the mallet to come up. And then once I add the elbow to it, you know, where, where appropriate, then now I'm, I have a complete full stroke and that's the way I define a full stroke. Yeah. That uses all your major muscle groups properly. It uses all your twitching muscle groups properly. It allows gravity and physics to do its job so that I'm not working equally hard to go down and up. Right. I want mm -hmm. down to be where I push my velocity and I want to relax as much as possible on the way up. I don't want to piss. This hurts. That just hurt what I just did. Right. This, this hurts. Yeah. Right. And do I think piston stroke is wrong? No. Um, I think at its fundamental core, it's great. But piston stroke essentially is like a basketball shot. I mean, yeah. when you shoot a basketball, you rebound, you recoil. That's a yeah. natural recoil. Right. So I mean, yeah. right. So if I hit, I, I have a natural recoil, but that, that all matters in the setup. If my setup is, is correct, that natural you know, up angle of my mallet, everything is there and already there without me having to be contrived and push my, my hand up. Just by being super relaxed, I'm just holding it on my back fingers and I have a nice upward angle. Yeah. Right. But when I push down and I start to be like, okay, I'm here, but now we have to push here and this is how we have to play. And if it has to look this way, then this is how we have to look. And then coming back to the whole marching man thing, health, sound quality, ceiling, is the most important thing most important thing and too many people and there's other important factors like the, there's other benefits to great technique the look is 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 one of them yeah there's a, um, there's a percentage of visual involved in this sure. activity totally absolutely agree but yeah. it should never come above your health or your sound no quality. absolutely not you I know mean, what i mean i always use the 75 25 percent comparison i'm sure it's different it's just a good it's a good proportion to make the comparison right i mean like sure. if i if i go into a new school like i did this year a private school that had no no prior instruction proper instruction rather um and you come in you're like yeah actually the what you're looking at how you look how all our the reason why we're all learning this this new way to play is so we can all look the same as well there's a little bit of that it's not the entire focus but you know there is a little bit to this activity that involves some visual and um to playing yeah. percussion in general i'm gonna go play i'll play solo and i still care about how i look exactly same you know and, like yeah totally you're, you're playing the orchestral gig and you you care it enhances about. the music correct i agree right and and so there i don't know if the 75 25 percent uh thing that i say is exactly agreeable across all all uh, schools of thought but it's just something i use so yeah and i think to relate to a child they're like oh okay cool yeah but at, at the same token though i mean i don't even i don't share that with the you know i share it with them in terms of when it comes becomes necessary but everything i talk about relates to sound mm -hmm. and creating beautiful sounds and creating a beautiful tone and being able to just 
play with amazing sounds. And I had I had an experience where I was with when I ran um this when I started a, a, a theater called the Arts Garage in Delray Beach, and we were fortunate to have some legends come through. So we had Roy Haynes. Was oh, it there? Man. I think it was there. So we had Roy Haynes come through. And so he gets off and he just got in from the plane. He came in just to kind of set up and check out the drums. And he had these cymbals and I was helping him set them up. And he had this big, beautiful 24-inch ride. It was like thin on the outsides. It kind of reminded me of like a Sabian Omni, like thin on the outsides and sort of like lathed heavier on the inside. Yeah. And he got on it. And he's like, yeah, he's like 90 at this point. He, he turned 96 two days ago. Yeah. Ridiculous. So he must have been then probably... 87 late 80s and he gets on the symbol and he just puts on a chair and just starts leaning on it and bending it oh man and bending it and just rotating it and bending it and i'm like uh hey uh mr haynes what are you what are you doing and he's like man this is how he talked right so he's like man symbols off the plane are just cold man they're just they're tight (laughs) like i gotta i gotta warm it up man i gotta get i gotta get the molecules moving man because I'm like, but it's a beautiful symbol, man. It's just beautiful. It's like, yeah, I just got it too. It's kind of new. They just sent it to me and it's a prototype. And he's like, I just got it. I got to get it worked in. He's like, I didn't have any time to put it in no dirt, but I would have. Oh, and I'm just man. like, but it's beautiful. And he goes, he goes, it doesn't matter, man. He goes, I need my sound to sound right. And he goes, yeah. and he looks, and he looks at me and he goes, sound is money, man. Sound is money. And I write that. I write that before every single class. I put that on the whiteboard. Sound is money. Super dope. And and that, his and grandson, his grandson is probably his grandson's Marcus Gilmore. Really? And, yeah. At first, I knew I had no idea. Yeah, and I didn't know that until recently. Explains the skill. And who he is also ridiculous. But imagine, I mean, imagine being taught that as a kid, learning how to play drums. That's what I'm saying. And thinking about sound, about like your choices and how it makes sense and how simple matters and how stick bead control and placement matters. Hey. You've probably noticed there's a new logo, a new Rudimental Podcast logo. Yes, there is. New aspects of the podcast and things getting better would not be possible without your support of listening and through a support link in the description below for just 99 cents a month. Yes, for just a dollar a month, you can support the podcast directly. It goes to things like a new logo, like video graphics, like audio equipment, video equipment. You get the gist of it. If you're interested, click that link in the description below. It's just a dollar a month, like I said before. Also, if you could subscribe, rate, and review on any platform you're listening on, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever, it is greatly appreciated. Back to the episode. You know, and and these kids aren't getting taught that because, you know, so going back to like my front ensemble philosophy, like I, I, we play... And I literally teach by asking questions as much as humanly possible. I mean, this stuff is dirty. I, I overwrite all the time when it comes to these kids. When it came to those kids in Boca, I, I overwrite for everyone. I'd like to push kids. Um, I'm more excited about them trying for stuff and just like when they reach it and be like, yeah, I got it. than I am yeah. about like, look how clean that little 16th note B flat scale was. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, 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 so I'll be, they'll play it and I'll, I'll look at them and I'll say, so what was that? What happened? And they'll take their guesses early in the season. You know, I think, I don't know. Most of them will say they don't know because they weren't, they were so internalized and they were so like worrying about their own playing and they were in the learning slash practicing phase of their, and they haven't gotten to the performance phase. They'd be like, okay, well, let's run it again. And they'd run it. I said, now what happened? And somebody like, oh, I, I feel like, you know, she was pushing a little bit and I was kind of laying back and I, I don't, I think I was with the Met, but she was behind the Met. Like, okay, are you sure? I'm not sure. No. I'm like, all right, let's, let's run it again. 
mm. and I'll run it again. And I, li I literally try as hard as I can until it's got to the point where I'm like, okay, I got to work some things out. If it gets there, we're like, okay, well, here is what happened. And then yeah. I'll tell them. But the idea isn't for them to come up with the right answer right away. It's for them to just be thinking about it all the time. Well, hey, that sound quality was right. Well, hey, that sound quality was weird. Why? Mm. Oh, um, I was honestly, I couldn't get my body position in a good place to play. And I really hit two of the notes on the node. Oh, okay, cool. Was that a choice? No, no, I just, I couldn't get there. All right, cool. Um, let's keep going. Because to me, a note is beautiful. If it's a choice you're making that you want to make it, you want to get rid of some overtones, move closer to the note. Mm. That's, I say that to some kids when I go in there and they're just like, wait, what? Like, no, that's Cardinal Sin number one. You can <laughs> never play near the note. I'm like, unless you do. Yeah. And it's a choice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So if I want to, if I'm playing a chord with a seven and a three in the top and a one and the five in the bottom, and I want it to be brighter, I'm going to push that one and the five, which is going to be naturally heard by the audience more. I'm going to push it closer to the note and I'm going to keep my seven and three. So it's a brighter chord, vice versa. If I want it to be a darker, more sonorous chord, right? Which, so, yeah. I mean, just a side note, uh, sure. the, the vibraphone, let's watching masters at work, right? So watching Stefan Harris in person watching uh my friend james whiting in person uh joe Locke, nick mancini yourself watching watching no oh, why thank you <laughs> watching you guys that community um of of vibraphonists which is even more niche than the community we're in already but sure. um you utilizing that instrument in a way that can't really be taught um, unless you have learned from one of those guys or experienced that, that, that it's, it's something that you wouldn't even think about as a, as for instance, like a front ensemble instructor or anything like that. Cause you, you're taught that the nodal point is the cardinal sin, right? Like you mentioned. Um, but then it's the same thing with the triangle, right? If you, if you hold a triangle, you could, Dean, my Dean Gronemeyer, my teacher used to always say, uh, I can get 30 sounds out of this Allen Abel triangle. And he was right, because unless you're playing it, we're always taught playing the sweet spot, no matter what, no matter the dynamic, no matter the situation. And then he's like, but watch this. You know, he, play, he plays on the outside top near the clip. It's, a, it's the purest triangle sound you've ever heard. Wow. It's the same thing can go for the vibraphone. And people don't really think about that firsthand. They think close to, uh, uh, close to the center of the bar, hit it a little bit with a little bit more, a little bit more oomph to move the metal. And then you got a vibraphone sound, but we don't think of things the same way all across the board, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's facts. And that's again, the, the same type of idea is that there's so much range with, with, with all these instruments, you know, with, with every one of these percussion instruments, the, the amounts of choices, a, a cymbal roll is not just a cymbal roll, you know, like there's so many things that, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that can be done with it. But and so, so what's always funny about like when I'm teaching these front ensembles and I'm teaching this method, there's always a moment around mid October where they're dirty as anything. And I'm like, am I doing the right thing <laughs> every year? And I'm like, yeah, uh, maybe I should just, and I never, I, I schedule the rehearsals. I never call more. Like yeah. I have, a, I don't call more rehearsals unless they can call more and I'll facilitate it, but right. I will not call more. I will usually I'll schedule a little over schedule and I'll pull back so that they think I'm a good guy like that. Right, but yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. never call more because Dude, noted. I, I might take that same. Uh, that same yeah, and, and I think that they and they need to, and I need to. I'm, I need to be okay with them failing because 
I'm not right. We're learning seven minutes of music, dude. And I'm not writing stuff that hard that you can't learn it in six months. Mm. You know what I mean? Or you can't learn it in four months or whatever your season is. So if you're not learning it, you know, that's, that's you. Like this is how many rehearsals. And there are some times when they'll be like, Mr. Tucker, can we get another rehearsal, please? Can we, I think we need one before the show. And I'm like, no, Mm. you should have learned it. Like, this is the gig. That's the job. Yeah. We're not going to learn it. So guess what? We have a performance Saturday. Well, can we just get here early on Saturday? It's like, I don't know. Ask the band director. If she opens the door, you can come practice, but I'm not getting here early. Yeah. You know? So whatever you guys want to do, you can do it. Yeah. You know, but I've given you plenty of time. You've had plenty of time. You knew that we did this competition as a surprise. No. So, but <laughs> yeah, I, but I saw your, ins- right. I done saw your Instagram and I saw you were out with your girlfriend and you're out at the beach and you're doing all this other kind of stuff on the weekend and over spring. So I don't know what you want to tell you. Like, I'm not going to sacrifice my time because you chose not to do it. So I have to be okay with them having a bad show and yeah. pe- me and people being like, yo, what was up with your group? It's like, I don't know. They ain't practice. <laughs> what do you want to tell you? You know? And, not but, my fault. <laughs> but there's this point in the season and it's when, and I can, I can tell you every season, I can almost pinpoint exactly where it was every season. I remember where I was sitting when it happened and we're out on the field and something terrible happened. Like it falls apart. There's a timing issue front to back, whatever it is. And I, I, I perk up and I stand up in the stands or I stand up, you know, wherever I'm standing and I'm like this and I, I see them be like, yeah. And, and the next need- run. Killing. Somebody called me off from the box. I got it. Right. It's like, no. And then the next run is killing. And then yeah. from that moment on, I'm only giving perspective. I'm like, hey, from up here, I'm hearing a little too much drum set. You know, can we just back it off? It's like, cool. No problem. I love hey. that part of the season. Right. And but but what happens is that they're just like they just they've they've taken this ownership of it. And the ensemble is no longer mine. It is now theirs. Right. And it's not because it's not a contrived theirs where I over rehearse them and micromanage. And I, I, I very rarely, I'll do it once or twice where I'll be like, you know, like just do the check pattern. Like I rarely do that. We'll talk about how to do it. We'll do it in class. We'll talk about it in a different application. We'll talk about it in terms of X and Y axis, you know, and moving around. But every rehearsal I sit there and I'm just like, interesting. What do you think happened? Okay, that that wasn't it. I'm telling you that wasn't it. But I'm asking you why. And, you know, and that way that the ensemble becomes their ensemble, they take this ownership of it. It's on for better or for worse. It's theirs. They start calling, but they start practicing. I see them there earlier. I see them playing. I see everyone. Sometimes I'll sit there and it'll be really bad one run and I'll say nothing. And like my colleagues will be like, yeah, you hear that? I'm like, yeah, but so do they, Mm. you know, and then they'll play it and it'll be it'll be great the next time I said, told you. You know, but that comes later in the season. But there's always that. And, and I have to fight every single time because my ego says, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Your colleagues will see you. Your people will see you. Your other people will see you. You know, they'll be like, they won't, they'll think you fell off. You know what I mean? They'll think you don't that, know what you're doing anymore. That battle, that battle ensues quite often in a lot of people. And it's refreshing to hear, hear it from, from people like. Oh, I wish I told you it went away. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't. I, I can only assume it doesn't because it's, it's a, it's a never ending kind of, uh, I guess it's like a, something that sits, sits pretty low. And then all of a sudden, like, you're like laying there at night, you're like, oh my God, like, you know, you're like, yeah. sit up real quick. <laughs> but, and, but I'm conscious of it now. And yeah. what happens then is that is we, I, we talk about ears. We talk about breathing together. That wasn't together. Hey, let's try breathing together on this one. Oh, I love like, that. I want you guys to just breathe in for four and out for four as you play this lick. Or I want you guys, like, listen, I don't want, I don't need contrived motions like this. <laughs> I want the motions to be, yeah. 
and by the way, I taught blue coats in 2017. I mean, blue, blue, uh, what's the other blue, blue stars in 2017. And they are very like, yeah, the, they're, like they're the, they're the butt end of that. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, but I do like, listen, breathe. If you breathe and you breathe and just allow yourself to expand and contract and just give me like a little 10% on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but give me it natural. Like when you're breathing, focus on your breathing and then give me a natural and you'll give me those moves yeah. without having to be pulsing up and down on this craziness. And, and um, what ends up happening is that as we talk about listening to your trios and blending and balance, Oh, here's another thing we talk about. Hey, um, Mr. Tucker, do you want us to go ahead and uh, um, crescendo into that, into that, that run into the end? I'm like, I don't know what's happening harmonically. How do you feel? Well, I feel like we, you know, we, we just, you know, we got to like a, a, a moment, uh, you know, we, I'm like, what do you mean a moment? Like we, like we just arrived home. I'm like, okay, well, what would you do to bring me home? Are you excited to come home? Or are you not excited to come home? How mm -hmm. do you feel? Well, I feel excited. Well then make me feel excited, man. Yeah. You know, and then, exactly. so that, right. And so then there's like, just give me what you're feeling. And then maybe it's, Hey, did you feel that way? It's like, Oh yeah, I did, but I'm just tired today. Okay, cool. So we're going to agree that we want to be excited on the way back to this. Right. Yeah. Make me, make me feel like we just came home. And then I'll explain that was a two, five, one cadence, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or that was a, a plagal cadence or whatever the case may be. And that's why it feels that way. When you hear that, you have to bring me to that point. Everything has to have direction. It either needs to be leading away from something or going towards something. If not, you're just musically playing with yourself, you know? Well, well then they, then they take that. And like we talked about, apply that to, uh, yes. apply it to gigs and, and apply yeah. it to even shorter term, they apply it to their concert season. Right. You know, they go in and I'm sitting here talking about, hey, did you hear that? Do you hear what your cymbal roll is doing for this moment? Yeah. You know, I know you waited 102 measures for it, but do you hear what that four measure cymbal roll is doing for this moment? Right. Hey, why did you choose that cymbal? Um, oh, I, cho I chose this cymbal because it's, it's a huge low brass crescendo and it's a three measure roll at 80 beats per minute. I'm not going to choose a 15 inch fast crash. My other option was this really random double AX Sabian that doesn't sound very good to me right now over this. And then I have this 20 inch ride. This is what I got to use. Yeah. And it's super thick. And that's what I'm going to use because it's just this deep, dark tone, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the way I want them thinking. Um, Think, and, and making and, thinking percussionist is what uh, I used to always be told by my UNLV faculty is. It's nice. Is yeah, I mean, Dean was a Gary Cook, um, a, a GA and student, and for a long time. And Gary talks about exactly what you're talking about, which he labels as experiential learning, um, not telling them the answer, but allowing them to discover it themselves. A lot of discovery, a lot of experiential uh, uh, experiences, and 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 having having thinking percussionists as students is such a different ball game, because you're sitting there like. Well, man, that's a good point. Uh, maybe I, maybe I yeah. should think of it that way. Like, you, and you get to that point, and you're like, "Whoa, all right, yeah. cool. Yeah, I got myself sure. a little system here." You know, for sure, for sure. And yeah, so that's um, that's that's my that's my that's my key in on that. I mean, um, yeah, I you know, it, it, and it's it's there's so many kids that I just I feel like should go to school, but there's so many there's so many issues with our culture, um. And, and creating artists and musicians, and it's not going to go away. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not going to go away. That's not that's not good to say. Um, but <laughs> it can go away. But you have no. It's not going to go away. It's really uh, yeah. I guess generationally it'll start going away. But we're still at a generation where parents are just used to this whole broke musician mindset. Musician is a hard job, right. and if it's hard, you shouldn't do it. But really, what they're trying to say is that it would be hard for me. 
Um, cause for me, I couldn't, I couldn't work a nine to five in front of a desk. My wife, nine to five all day, every day. Like that's her. She loves the routine. She loves, yeah. this is your job structure. This is your, you study these things. You'd be really good at these things and you do this job and here's your routine. And she's killing at it. Like she's right. gifted at just doing the job. I am not, no, you know, I am not either. if I, yeah, if I don't love it and I'm not inspired by it, like I, I hate the, even when I was working in nonprofit and I was a city, you know, I was a city cultural guy. I was making lots, I was making, I was making really good money, but I hated the claustrophobia of it. I, I hated the fact that I couldn't create anything extra. Like I couldn't go and, you know, I like the fact that my finances are tied to my performance 100% oh, yeah. of my entire and life. It's motivating know? too, especially when you have a family, I'm sure. I, I can't speak for that, but um, I can only imagine it's a, it's an instinctual thing as well. Right. Well, it's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's cool that my kids, my goal with sticking with it is also that my kids know that they can do whatever they want. Like right. it, it, you can tell them, yeah, you can be whatever you want to be. Um, but when they see dad, you know, going out and paying the mortgage by doing what he wants to do, yes, um, it's, it's an empowering thing. Can um, I, can the, I ask you about that? Can I ask you, sure. because as someone, as someone, as someone who as, in, aspires to be uh, performing just as much as he's teaching. Um, and you, you mentioned that you don't, you don't tour a gig in the fall, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, um, I, I, that's not true. Actually I, I do, but usually I'll do like a week here okay. and a week there, but yeah. But how, how did you come to a point of, of getting into that? Cause, cause I saw, I, I saw you play with Jonathan scales. You play, you know, you play all these kind of gigs that um, I imagine uh, are, are a whole other full commitment in themselves. And I feel like I'm in a similar boat and I want to be in that, in that same boat. Um, I'm freelancing right now, which is an, a learning, learning experience in itself. But, you know, maybe, maybe I did find a situation like yours um, where I'm teaching yet also pursuing playing projects and stuff like that full time. Um, how did, how did you get to that? Because, it's very rare you find a person um, who's not teaching at the collegiate level doing what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? Yes. We so, we have time, right? Uh, I, however, however much time you want. Okay. Then can I get a refill real quick? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. And then we'll get into it because okay. I like this topic. So, uh, okay. So here's, here's the thing. And so full, full disclosure, um, I, I've never not been working that I can remember. So when I was, I, I learned about jazz vibraphone at drum corps. I was marching Magic of Orlando in 1996 and Jerry Carpenter, who was my teacher, was out there playing, um, like I was at lunch one day and he was just playing Footprints, which is like. Um, uh, and I was like, he was like, and I was like, I came by and I was like, yo, what are you playing? And I came by with my, you know, with Magic of Orlando. So I had like potato chips and like ketchup. I was like, what are you playing? And, he, and he's like. I can relate. Like, I was open class. So. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We came in eighth that year in world class. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was just like, oh man, that's some jazz. I'm like, well, where's the music? And I was 15 when I first marched my world class, first world class core. So he's just like, no, man, I'm just kind of playing the changes and the melody. And I was like, okay, I, I don't understand that, but all right, fine. 
And I would go up to him all the time and ask him, like, so what do you mean, like, you're playing the changes? He's like, well, if I see, like, a C minor, I play it like this. And I was like, so you're not just reading all the notes? He's like, no. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's, that's amazing. And so I remember I went back to Florida. I found a jazz teacher. And there was a teacher named um, Errol Rakapov who uh, studied directly with Gary Burton. came from Hungary. Like, have you ever seen there's a Shake This Udage, which is, you know, that tune that Gary Burton did by himself. It's solo. It's an amazing vibe tune. And he transcribed it. So he's like really, well, you know, off time played. And he's just an amazing dude. And anyway, so I found him. And he gave me an album, and the album was uh, Chick Corea live in Chick Corea and Gary Burton live in Zurich, 1979. And mm -hmm. I, the first intro of Senior Mouse Man, I heard that thing, and I just angels descended from heaven. Like it was <laughs> like the cool. I was like, what is happening? There, how many mallets? It was how many vibraphones are being played? Is that the piano and the vibe? Like it just, and it was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this thing. I, I have to do this. Like I fell so deeply in love with this instrument. Right. Um, like I like marimba. Beautiful marimba one for a while. I had a Yamaha 50, 50, 50, 500, whatever it was. Um, and I like it a lot. And every time I would just kind of like go and be like, eh, I would always kind of like, it was cool. But to me, it was always an extension of my actual first love. It was kind of like, you know, like having concubines. Anyway, um, so so I fell in love with it and I just wanted to play it all the time. So I, I remember going to a youth orchestra thing in Palm Beach and I met a guy named Nicholas Cole. And this is the guy I was telling you about, Nick, who, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was, his brother was playing violin and he was just playing like some jazz. And I was like, Hey man, cause I went like a jazz cave. I listened to everything I could. And you know, this is before Apple music and whatever. So I'd either go to library or I had to buy the CD. We go to borders books or Barnes and Noble. I don't think it was it Barnes and Noble. I don't know, whatever borders <laughs> books, I think was the one or FYE or peaches. And yeah. I'd find all the CDs in the jazz section. And I'd have like 13, 14 bucks. And I pick them up. I go to the discount bin. I pick them up. I had like a rack of just jazz CDs and I went yeah. deep and I loved hip hop too. So I listened to, I had all the Tupac, I had all the Biggie. Um, yeah. I had, I had all the, uh, Oh yeah. What's up? Oh, I, I didn't eat yet. Did I? Huh? Interesting. Thanks. Huh? <laughs> I'm going to eat it. Um, so I had, I had, I hope you can get a good clip out of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I had, I had all the Biggie, I had all the Tupac, I had all the, all the stuff. Um, and you know, I just was listening to everything so much and it was, and, and so when I heard him play, I was like, Hey man, you play, do you play with anybody? He's like, Oh man. And he came from a family of musicians. Like his, this guy was like a, like a gypsy dude, like all his parents played and all this stuff. And he was just really virtuosic for his, like, he was 16 at the time and just was like, and he was singing and I said, let's get together and play. We got together, we played like one time. I think I knew like a D minor blue scale at the time. I don't even think I knew much. Maybe like a C major scale, D minor blue scale, something else. But I was learning tunes and I didn't know how to solo over them. I would just like use my ear and kind of guess what I was yeah. playing. I didn't know. Um, and so what I did, and here's kind of the key point, is I would go to every single place I, I could find. And I would go and... Uh, like we had like a couple strip malls down the corner from our house. We had like a corner of four strip malls on this corner where I could walk to them at the end of our block, like at the end of like maybe like half mile down. I'd walk down, go door to door, walk in and be like, hey, um, I play vibraphone. I got a buddy who plays piano. Can we play for you? And they'd be like, you know, I don't care if it was a lawyer's office, dude. I don't care if it was a doctor's office, ice cream parlor, coffee place, gym, <laughs> hair salon. I walked in every place and was like, hey, maybe, maybe this. 
You know, yeah. maybe you haven't thought of it yet, but I can play. I got obviously got a ton of no's, but I didn't really care. But I got a lot of yeses. Yeah. And by a lot, I mean like three, which is three more than I would have got if I didn't ask anybody. That's a lot yeah. in my book. I mean. Right. So I said, don't pay us. They said, well, what do you charge? I said, well, don't pay us. We'll come in for the weekend or we'll come in on Friday. If you like us, give us $100 every Friday for a month. Okay. And they said, okay, cool. Now, again, this is 1995, 96, 96. And so this is before Facebook and stuff. So I'm like, I'm calling everybody. Just calling everybody. I'm guilt. Hey, grandma. Hey, granddad. You know, you're, hey, aunt. Hey, friend from church. Hey, this person. Hey, that person. Hey, this person. You got to come out. It's my first time playing live music. And it was always my first time. My first time playing live music. And yeah, I just really need some support. And I played at this one ice cream shop. And like, we packed the place out on the street. He told his <laughs> friends. Because that's what, that's what, when kids play, that's what it is, which goes yeah. back to what, that's village building. Like your parents come, they tell their friends, they tell their friends, and that's how you build community and village around children, right. Yeah, you know, um, by propping your children up, the next generation. So we'd play, and then we ended up like maybe six, seven months, maybe eight, six, seven months later, we, I was playing eight, eight shows a week. I was playing a brunch at a hotel. Uh, by about, yeah, about six, seven months later, I was playing a brunch at a hotel. I was playing... All I was playing bookstores, ice cream shops, coffee parlors, all over the place, making fifty dollars a night, and for fifteen year olds, sixty dollars, you know, working for an hour and a half, two hours, yeah, you know. And then when I wasn't busy, my dad, who's no longer with us, man, but he would take me everywhere. We'd put this thing in his truck. Well, not this one, but we put the the one I would creatively borrow from my high school in the truck. Creatively just, borrow. <laughs> yeah, we would just tool it down to wherever, and um, I would try to sit in with people. And so for me. And I would sit in with people and, and God bless those dudes, man, because they were the nicest guys and they were so supportive and I must have been terrible. And um, as a matter of fact, my first show was with a guy named Dr. Lonnie Smith, who's one of the best B3 organ players ever to do it. And I I've heard he the was. name. Yeah, he wears a turban. Um, he, yeah. he plays B3. He's 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 a Mac. I saw him play with the Roots two years ago. Like the last time I saw him. Um, he wasn't doing well, but I, he was with the Roots. Like that's that's there, where he's at. There's a video of him playing at nam with Corey henry i think yeah exactly so for me all that to say like so you know i was always working and when you play the vibraphone that i mean i was always doing that so i was living at home i was saving money i got out of school i got a job teaching my first drum line for straight out of high school i was going to college um i was going to fau uh florida atlantic university the local state school but at the time their music program was weak they were asking me to teach stuff like they had a drum set guy but they had no mallet guy i was in and they put me in everything they put me in the klezmer orchestra they put me in the jazz vocal ensemble they put me in they didn't have a percussion ensemble they put me in everything so they're like oh well we'll give you classical percussion lessons with this guy who was and then we'll also give you jazz piano lessons with this guy and that'll make a jazz vibraphone um <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> but this but the jazz the, I mean, the classical percussion guy was, what well, he, I mean, he was played fine. Mike Parola, I'm gonna, I'll call it the good and the bad. I don't care. Yeah. Um, Cause this guy came in, he's like, cool, play your major minor scales. And I was like, sure. And I played a drum corps style. Cause that's what I play. That's just how I play it. I played, yeah. he was like, wait, that's crazy. I don't ever want to see you playing like that again. It's terrible and it's awful. And it was to be fair. <laughs> However, it was very tied up in lots of great emotions and feelings. So don't tell me that this thing that I loved, it, you know, as an 18 year old kid, you can't separate those things from each other. Right. right yeah. um, and then he said, like, I'm not a jazz cat. I don't want to hear any of that jazz. And it was just, it was just miserable. And I was like, well, I hate this. So I applied for Berkeley. I got in. Um, I went, 
I paid, I did not, I was lazy and did not apply for scholarship. And when I did, I barely practiced and just played something I knew. I didn't get a scholarship. So like, right, I'll go pay for it, you know, not realizing really how much it cost. Right. So I went up there, money was getting low and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go broke here. You know, this is, and I was like, this is a lot of money to pay for a music degree, guys. Like I've been playing music for a long time. And at the time now I've been doing it for two years or so, three, no, almost four years. I'm like 20 years old. Um, and uh, you know, to this, to date, like, yeah, a couple of gigs, I would make like three, 400 bucks. But for the most part, you're at 150 bucks a show max, you know, a hundred dollars a night gigging, you know, plus tips. And I'm like, why are we paying $30,000 a year to make a hundred dollars a show? Mm. I don't really understand this guys. And no one yeah. can really, no, nah, no, nah, man, we're going to get on like a big concert. I'm like, yeah, but I'm telling you what the reality is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. telling you what I hope I make. I'm telling you what I have made by doing this for a long time. And like, yeah, but when people call you, you become music director and you do this and you do that. Um, but the community and the culture was so great. Like you walk down Boylston and there's people playing everywhere and there's people in all over campus in their rooms and you're making these collaborations with these people from India and from, from Bangladesh and from all these other types of really cool things. And so when I decided to leave and I went back to, you know, to Boca Raton, I was like, this is terrible. So I went to Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale for graphic design and advertising. Oh. Um, I just said, I'm done. You know, I don't want to play it anymore. You know, I was very non-motivated. I was depressed because I just left this beautiful community and culture of music everywhere and came back here. And I'm like, well, that's pretty much it, I guess. You know, so I did that. But then I was depressed doing that because I looked at my vibraphone and um, I had a, uh, it was like my laundry, <laughs> my basket, yeah. you know? So I was like, well, this is terrible. Like it was always pulling at me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to use what money I have remaining. I was gigging again, still living at home. Use what money I have remaining. I'm going to travel and study with all the people who I love and respect and who are great. My so, friend James did the exact same thing. Uh, yeah, he's he's Australian, uh, also an IP guy. Shout out Innovative. Um, that uh, they he would take his summers, which were it's different system over there, obviously, but uh, he would take his summers, which is like December January, and he would come over here stateside and study with Joe Locke and nick and like all these people and uh so it sounds like you know like a like a like i said that community's niche obviously so but same idea i, I went but i went i was in the marimba cave at the time like so i bought a marimba one and oh. i went and studied with neboisha mm -hmm. uh Zivkovich. i went to keiko abe's camp i went to the belgian marimba camp oh, uh, in marimba competition which i lost and funny because i was at unt's camp in 2019 uh 2019 and um Daimo was there and we were joking and she's like you were at the belton marimba camp in 20 2004 and i'm like yeah she's like i won that competition and i'm like dude, yeah, <laughs> dude thanks a lot she's yeah. dope she's, <laughs> she's super dope yeah she's the best and, and she's the sweetest and she's just she takes it so seriously and so she shreds yeah. and and she's, um, it's funny because it's like one of the best marimba performers is married to one of the most prolific marimba composers mm -hmm. of our time. I think he actually is um, because I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to hear Bach and marimba anymore, but he takes those elements and he takes all of these different yes. elements and he puts it into something original and new and fresh. And we need more of that. I'm so see, sick of Bach on a marimba. See, seeing him in, in a clinic is so refreshing. There's a lot oh, yeah. of people see Pius in, their, in, in a clinic in a clinic form and they're like, Oh, you know, like whatever. He was kind of like nonchalant about it. It's like, you know what? I don't, I don't care if you're, if you're like, 
if you're somebody who is taking the instrument and taking it in a direction that nobody else has taken it in before, I just want to see you do your thing. I don't care how you go about it. If you go about if you go about this instrument that way, that makes me feel better because I feel like the instrument has this has such a uh, a stigma behind it of being a it's a difficult instrument in general, uh, classically, and b there's such a strict uh, kind of structure to learning the instrument right now that uh, I loved it. He's sitting down while he's playing. He's we're like, why are you sitting down? He's like, uh, I'm lazy. I didn't want to stand up. Yeah, because I'm lazy. He and says it every time. I doesn't hear. help. I'm just kind of lazy. It does help that he's six five, but you know it's whatever. Or six four. He's not six five. You don't think? I'm taller than him. Yeah, we we've hung out quite a bit. I'm taller than him. Uh, maybe it was, maybe it was the angle I was at. But I don't he's know. sitting down. He's he's a giant personality. Yeah, you know, and, and he's like, at the end of the clinic, he goes, it, "Well, first of all, he played uh, Verona Porteño. Just like he was sure. like." He he his arrangement. He was like, oh, I haven't played this in like six months. Let's give it a shot. And so like nails it. Of course, beautiful beautiful piece. Um, beautiful arrangement of it rather. And he was like, finishes it, finishes the clinic and all the questions. And he's like, uh, all right, well I'm gonna go smoke a cigarette, and get on a plane, see you guys later. And we're like, yeah, yeah. like you know what yeah, I mean. It's... It wasn't so like up. It wasn't so like uppity. Yep. You know, it wasn't so like sure. high society. Because well, here's why. Here's why he doesn't play for other musicians. That's it for part one with Drew Tucker. Part two out next week. Be on the lookout for that. If you can already tell, this conversation goes a lot of different ways, and there is a lot of not holding back, which is what podcasting, I think, needs to be about. I love it. This is so, so much fun, honestly. Look out for part two next week. And just a friendly reminder to subscribe, rate, and review TRP on all major streaming platforms. Give us a follow on Instagram at The Ruin Little Pod. Give me a follow at Hartwell Drums. You can go to my website, www.hartwelldrums.com, for all my updates and some of the podcast updates. Yeah, I love this episode. It's. He's such a, you know, he's such a great guy, like, you know, in a wealth of knowledge, he's well-spoken. Um, that's why I loved stretching this conversation out to a two-parter. Keep everybody, keep everybody on their toes. That's it for this one. We'll see you next time.